All right, well, let's turn over to page 10 and 11 in the study guide. And uh, Romans, uh, the end of Romans chapter 3 uh, in, in uh, the text. And we, we want to today get this uh, last section. I, I, we may get a little bit over into chapter 4. We'll kind of see how it goes here. But um, in um, this last section, uh, Paul unpacks a particular implication, uh, an application of the argument he's been making. So to summarize this argument, it goes like this. The divisions which exist in your community, these Gentile Jewish divisions, which you are maintaining, have to be put away. They're, the distinction is invalid. And here's why. Because you are one in sin. You are one in your lostness. All have what? Sin. And a few have come short of the glory of God, right? <laughs> Just a couple. Just a couple. Only you Romans, right? But the Jews hadn't. No, you've all sinned. All have come short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. So all are lost. There's a unity of lostness, and there is a unity of free justification. So the salvation, the justification, which is freely and graciously bestowed upon the Roman, upon the Gentile, is the same justification and salvation, which is freely bestowed on the Jew. And so the, the, the salvation is the same. So the sinful state is the same. The lostness is the same. The justification, the salvation is the same because God is one. God is one. And you're going to hear Paul make that argument in these next few verses. So no one... No one has any ground for boasting. No one can boast when it, when it comes to a relationship with God. Whatever ethnic or religious or socioeconomic advantages you may believe you possess, whether those are academic and intellectual advantages or economic advantages or racial advantages or religious advantages, any of those kinds of things, before God... Before God, those things aren't valid. They, they do not provide any ground whatsoever for boasting. Nor is there any basis for boasting in reference to being in a relationship with God about anything we have done, right? So justification is freely bestowed. Salvation is freely given by God. And it itself is rooted in the redemption which Christ has accomplished. So being justified freely as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Jesus Christ. And remember that word redemption. Roman people would have heard that word redemption and, and would have heard someone has paid the price for me to no longer be a slave. Jewish people would have heard that word redemption and would have gone immediately back to the book of Exodus 
and being liberated from slavery in Egypt, because that same word is used over there in their text. So it was a marketplace Roman word, and it's a scriptural word for the Jews, but, but in both cases, it's a word that says a price has been paid for your freedom, and you didn't pay it. You're not the one who paid it. Somebody else paid this price so you could be free. So both Gentiles and Jews have been freely justified, and the price of that justification uh, is the blood of Christ. He has done it all. So there is no room anymore for two things. There's no room for boasting, and there's no room for division. The old distinctions are no more in reference to each other, and there's no room for boasting when it comes to our relationship with God. Since how much did we contribute to our justification? Nothing. So if you contribute nothing, if everything you have has simply been bestowed on you when in fact you didn't even deserve it. It's not like somebody looked at you and I want to give you this gift because, because you, because sometimes you'll hear people say this, no, 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 you deserve it. You just, because you go, no, 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 no. You, they go, no, no, you, you deserve it. You've done so much for me. Thank you so much. Okay. Well, we understand that kind of language, but when it comes to God, God gives his rich and bountiful gifts to people who what? Who, 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 not, who hate him, who hate him, who've done everything in their power in many cases to denounce him and to despise him and, and to besmirch his glory, to vandalize his image. God bestows his gift on them. And so Saul is on the road to Damascus, and he's going to imprison Christians, and he's going to put them to death, and God says, I'll take him. And he freely justifies him. And, and, and so again, from, from from Paul, from his own experience, the existential moment of his own conversion. What does Paul think in reference to grace? Had he done anything? No, it's, it's, it's just given to him. Okay, so with that background, okay, then you turn to Romans 3, um, and the latter part of this, um, Paul asks one of his famous rhetorical questions in verse 27. So he says, God is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's the question. Where then is boasting? It is excluded. There is no place for boasting. By what kind of law? What's the law that excludes boasting? Is it a law of works? No. The law of faith. And here Paul's going to have some fun. He, he, he's going to use two words which in some cases appear to be juxtaposed as opposites law and faith, and he's going to use them together. And he's going to say the, 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 the spiritual law that excludes boasting is a law of faith. So it's law lowercase, like a, a spiritual principle, if you will. The law of faith excludes boasting. For, all right, so here's the argument in verse 28 that the summary of everything that's been said. For, here's why boasting is excluded, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then he asks a question which, on the surface of it, might seem unrelated. If it, it, but it only appears unrelated if you fall into the trap of thinking of justification and salvation as entirely and exclusively personal. Now, this is a particular problem for Westerners. 
For those of us in the West, we think in highly individualistic terms. We think about personal privilege, individual rights. Uh, really, ever since Descartes, post-Enlightenment people, Descartes, cogito ergo sum, I, what? Think, therefore, I am. So we find I, uh, our, our identity in the, in the individual and in the, person, in, the, and in the personal. And so we're not as conscious as we might be in the way that some other cultures are, particularly uh, Asian and uh, Middle Eastern cultures in particular, of a communal dimension. They're much, more, they're much more communal in their understanding of reality, and we're much more individualistic. So this question could seem out of place in Western eyes. He says, or is God the God of the Jews only? You kind of go, what's that? What is he asking that question for? Well, again, the backdrop, the backdrop for salvation, his discussion of salvation here is the fact that these divisions exist between Jews and Gentiles in the culture. And those cultural differences have come over into the church. And what Paul's saying is there's no room for those divisions in the church. There's no room for that distinction because God is not the God of the Jews only. Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of course, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law? Um, and of course the answer to that, Paul says, is what? No, we establish, we establish the law. We'll get into what he means by that. So, so here's, here's the way this, this, argument, this argument flows. There is no place in reference to God in terms of our salvation. There's no place for what Paul calls boasting. No place for boasting. It does not mean, however, that we don't boast. Paul does talk about us boasting. Um, and I'll give you a few here where he talks about boasting. I've put them in your study guide, and I'll give you a couple of references. All right, first of all, he says we should boast in Christ. That's 1 Corinthians 1.31. So if you're in your study guide, top of page 10 there, uh, Roman numeral 3, the end of human prideful boasting, A, boasting in Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.31, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. So my only boast is the Lord himself. He is my boast. Then, Paul writes, we boast in the cross. Galatians 6.14, forbid it, Lord, and you guys sing this when you sing that beautiful hymn, I think perhaps the most beautiful hymn in the English language, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death or the cross of Christ my God, and so on. So in Galatians 6.14, which is where that hymn is, is based, Paul says uh, uh, he uh, uh, does not boast in anything except the cross of Christ. That's his boast in reference to salvation. And then in 2 Corinthians 11 verse 30 and 2 Corinthians 12.9, Paul says, I will boast in my weakness. I will boast in my weakness. Now this too is counterintuitive and completely contrary to the way you and I as Western people, and particularly as Americans, think. We value 
the rugged individual. Uh, we value the champion. We value the person who perseveres and is heroic. We value the pioneer, the person who cuts through the wilderness. That is the, that is the American psyche, and there is much in that that is praiseworthy. I am not here to condemn it by any stretch of the imagination. That noted, if we allow that cultural note to come into the symphony of grace, we will create disharmony. There is no place for human pride, ingenuity, boasting, human strength, heroic effort when it comes to justification. In fact, it's the exact opposite, and this is where it gets counterintuitive. Paul says, I will rather boast in my what? Weaknesses. Now, even in the church, and I can tell you straight up, pastors are, are, are taught, you don't boast in your weakness. Don't boast in your weakness. Don't let people know you're what? Don't let them know that. Don't let them know you're weak. You have to, you have to portray an image of what? Strength. Uh, so, so some poor Presbyterian pastor <coughs> will condemn a, 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 a papal view of claiming infallibility, but, one, but, but is supposed to project a persona of himself being infallible. Well, well that's crazy town, okay, because I'm not infallible, but not by any stretch of the imagination. And, and uh, uh, I'm, I'm sinful, and I'm broken, and uh, I'm so bad that when I'm doing good, I'm sinning. I, I, while I, while I'm, I'm, when I'm at my best, I'm at my worst. When I'm teaching you the Bible, I'm hoping you like me, right? So <laughs> I, hope, I, hope they, I hope they still like me. Okay, so we, uh, you, you know, I'm kind of joking, but you all know what I mean, right? We all have these things in us, okay? And so this notion of somehow projecting a persona of power is what we're taught to do. Be strong, be tough. You know, but to stand up and say, well, no, I'm a sinner. In this kingdom, all the shepherds are sheep. And um, I'm in as big a need of, of a savior as anybody. That is vital for pastors to do. Now, let me give you a little biblical background on this. The Bible never presents the primary characters of Scripture as people who do not have sin. That's not how they're presented. You think about it. Moses is a murderer, right? David, famously, adultery, and then a kind of arranged killing of the husband of the woman with whom he's having an affair. I mean, this is HBO-level stuff here, right? I mean, this is... This is this is good. This is good, juicy stuff. It's okay. This is rated R material, okay? But those are those are these are your these, <laughs> these are your role models, all right? And I mentioned this on Sunday. When you look at Jacob's family, again, one of the things one of the things we need to realize is how big a mess are these people? The sons of Jacob, they're a mess. They're a mess, and they're all on a journey towards towards faith. Jacob is himself on a long journey that results in faith, but it takes him a long time to get there, right? Um, so, 
the people that are put forward to us in the scriptures, let's think about the disciples of Jesus. There's a, there's a, there's a great group. <laughs> Thomas, what? How many of you would have liked to have Thomas as your partner at the feeding of the 5,000? That would have been a great guy. To, you know, Jesus. <laughs> really? Really? I can't imagine. I always, I, see, I read between the lines. I always think that's good. I, 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 I think it was the funniest group, the funniest group at the feeding of the 5,000 in the wilderness, the poorest that I felt worse for, is the very first group that were seated. That Peter, I, I always thought Peter and Thomas probably did it together. <laughs> and the very first group that got fed, because they, they had a little bit of fish and a little bit of bread, and they go to the first group. How much do you, Jesus, you're going to feed all these people. How much do you suppose the people in the first group got? You know, Peter's like. <laughs> it's like those little chicklets you used to get at communion, right? You know, that, those little ch chiclet communion, you know what I'm talking about? I hate that stuff. All right. Anyway, so, so they're like, yeah, the Lord bless you, you know. Here's a, some, oh, thanks. Great. But the problem, you know, the more they did it, what happened? The, it just kept coming, didn't it? It just kept growing. I've always imagined Peter, you know, kind of going, wow. <laughs> you know, so about the, about the second group, he's just like ripping off chunks. And, and Thomas is probably by that time going, yeah, I knew it. I knew it. I, I said all along that's the way that was going to go. So, <laughs> so. Peter ends up denying the Lord. Thomas is famous for his doubts. James and John wanted to call down fire on a town. And Jesus, did, you know, just does a, you know, face palm. Like, what the heck? You know, so these guys, it's important for us to remember that Scripture never tries to cover that up. It never covers that up. Saul's a murderer. Held the coats while Stephen's being stoned. Um, you know, Mark... This gospel is Peter's preaching. Uh, and if I'd have been Peter, I mean, if it had been me, and Mark's writing down that bit about the, you know, him denying, I'd have said, hey, could we just like leave that part out? Let's leave that part out. That thing about me denying the Lord, let's uh, say John did it, right? <laughs> say Diana did it, okay? You know? But the disciples were aware of their fallenness, they were aware. When Jesus is at the table uh, at the Last Supper, he says, one of you is going be to betray me. And the disciples said, they answered with a question. The disciples said, is it I? Is it I? That's not what I'd have said. I'd have said, is it Ken? Right? I mean, I... <laughs> Is it Mike? Right? Because it can't be me, right? I'm not going to, you know. But is it, right? is it I? Is it I? See, they're very aware of the fact that they are, they're, they're capable. Now, see, that is it I thing has to be in us very deeply. So just as we're conscious of the gift of salvation which has been given to us, that gift is magnified by the fact that we are very, very aware of our fallenness and that delivers us from ingratitude, so it magnifies our salvation, and it delivers us from self-righteousness so in, in, by judging other people, and it, and it delivers us as well from 
from uh, DIY salvation projects where we try to save ourselves. And we simply continually fall down on the mercy of God. All right. So those are our boasts. This means that the old system is gone. The old system has been uh, totally done away with because it is not Jesus plus the law. It is Jesus apart from the law. That's the case that Paul's making. Salvation and justification are not Jesus plus the law. It's Jesus apart from the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law completely, totally filled up its demands, done that on our behalf, and so we are not saved by law-keeping, and we're not saved by any of the rituals of the law, and that means that boasting has to be excluded. Now, the symbolism in Jesus' death of that old system coming to an end is the tearing of the veil. You remember when Christ dies, and he gives, you know, it is finished, and he breathes his last. The Gospels tell us that the veil in the temple was torn. All right, so here's my question. Who tore it? That's God tearing it. And God was tearing it. God was tearing it. Because he's saying, this old system of approaching me is now fulfilled because the writer of Hebrews tells us that Christ's flesh on the cross is the ultimate veil. We, have, we draw near to God through the veil that is Christ's flesh. So his flesh on the cross having been torn, that's the veil that's been torn. And so we don't have any more, any more veils to go through. There are no more barriers with us and God. God created those barriers by his grace. He did that to protect us so he could live with his people, but they could be protected. Uh, because his, the, the power of his holiness would have destroyed them in their fallenness. And so God creates ways for them to draw near but now, remember, those Old Testament sacrifices, we looked at this, could never take away sins. They simply postponed it. But now, because of Christ, all those sins which have been postponed have now been fully dealt with, and that means we can draw near to God, and we can live with him without any fear, and in holiness and blamelessness before him all our days, as Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, sang. Um, so we now are with the Lord in uh, a place of great intimacy, in a place of great fearlessness, in a place of great joy. So there's no going back to the inferior, to the anticipatory, to the shadow. We have the fulfillment, the substance, that is Christ. So there's no boasting. Romans um, 4 verse 2 picks up on this word boasting. If you look over there for just a second, kind of, kind of, Let's put our toes in for chapter 4. He says, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to what? Boast about, but not before God. Okay. Um, and then he'll go on to make this argument. If you, if you work and you get what you've earned, right, that makes, that makes sense. You worked for it. You earned it. But if it's... And you can boast in that. But if it's a gift, if it's a gift that's given, then the ground of boasting is taken away. 
So this is what Paul calls the law of faith or the principle of faith. This means we basically have two options for justification. You have two options, faith in Christ or works of the law. Paul's going to put it in terms that stark. You can be right with God. You can, you can have rightness with God, right relationship with God on the basis of faith in Christ or the basis of your own works. Now, the, um, trying to be justified by your own works, Paul says here in this text, is impossible. Look at verse 28. We maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So he says that's the way that is. Because here's the problem. Once you start thinking that you're going to be right with God on the basis of what you do, once you start down that road, once you say, well, it's G- yes, yes, I have Jesus, but I need to add in these other things to make me right with God. The, the, the problems with that are so many. Here's the first one. You're telling Jesus that what he did was not enough. So imagine, and I've talked about this before, imagine standing at the foot of the cross, there's Jesus, he's about to die, and you're, you're down there at the foot of the cross, and you say to Jesus, that's so excellent, good effort, tremendous. Um, now here's my part. Here's, here's, my, here's my part to kind of put us over the finish line. Thank you for getting us this far. I, I, Jesus, I've got it from here. What an insult, right? So, here's, so that's the first thing. Here's the, you're, you're, you're diminishing what Christ has done. You're saying what he did is not enough. Here's, here's the second thing. You'll never know when you've done enough. I mean, if you want to say the way I'm justified is by, well, Jesus plus what I do, when have you ever done enough? And even the things that you did, did you do them altruistically? Did you do them on the basis of love? Were they pure? Or was there perhaps the note or hint of selfishness in them? Well, of course, if if you look deeply, you'll note that there's there's that hint of self-centeredness even in our our best efforts, that they are still polluted by sin. So, so the problem is you'll never have any peace. You'll never have any rest of your soul, for your soul because you never know if you've done enough. I've got to keep adding. I've got to keep working. Maybe I've done enough. I don't know. But you'll never be able to say over your works, it is finished. And here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. And this, this view is, by the way, is called legalism. Legalism. The legalist, I put this in your notes, the legalist, the person who insists that it's Jesus plus whatever in order for you to be right with God, does not take the law seriously enough. My problem with legalists is they don't take the law seriously enough. Well, what, you say, well, that's a little counterintuitive. What do you mean? Well, here's what I mean. The law, as we've learned from Paul, Paul says, how much of the law do you have to keep in order to be right? How much? All of it. And Paul, being part of the conservative end, the conservative wing of the Pharisees, and, that's the, that's the, and their theology is the theology that runs through the New Testament, 
with reference to the law, says that if you break one part of the law, how much of it have you broken? The whole thing. So the problem for the legalist is that the legalist must insist, must insist, that the entire law be obeyed and, therefore, that you can obey it. And you must obey it in order to be right with God. But that's not what legalists say. Legalists say you need to obey Jesus and do the best you can. Give it your best shot. Keep adding things in. But that, friends, is an inadequate view of the law. The true view of the law is perfect total obedience. But there's only one person who has perfectly and completely obeyed the law. Who's that? Jesus. He did. And he became the sacrifice the law demanded. So he fulfills the law in its entirety, and he does this as our covenant head. He does it on our behalf. It is, ironically, if you will, the person who champions grace who takes the law most seriously. It is the person who talks about grace all the time, who relentlessly is, is resting in grace, who will boast only in Christ. That person, and not the legalist, takes the law most seriously. Because the person who knows that their only boast is Christ and their only boast is the cross, their only boast is what Jesus has done, that person knows that the law is perfect and holy and just and good. That's the language Paul uses about it. And cannot save anyone. Can't. So that person takes the law seriously. The legalist does not. So what do we learn here? Paul says that because this grace has come to us and there's no more room for boasting, that we are one people. Salvation is one because God is one. He says um, in verse 29, is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since indeed God who will justify the uncircumcised by faith, that's the Gentiles, and the circumcised by faith, that's the uh, Jews, is one. God is one. Would you say it with me? God is one. Now Paul's Good Pharisee, when, when Paul the Pharisee, Paul the Jewish theologian says, God is one. What's he, what's, where's that from? That's the, that's the great Shema. That's Deuteronomy 6.4. Shema is a Hebrew word, and it means hear or listen. Shema, hear. So it's called the great Shema because it starts that way, Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is God the Lord is one. It's the most ancient and radical statement of monotheism in history. God is one. God is one singular. God is one in unity. He is united and he is one. So hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and so on. So the great Shema. By the way, the Hebrew word for obey is the same word, Shema, because to hear is to obey. 
And that comes through even in our language. Sometimes if your children are acting up, you might have said to them, you're not, and you might not have said obeying me, you might have said, you're not what? You're not listening to me. You're not hearing me. So to hear God, people always say, I want to hear God. To hear him is, is to presuppose an inclination of obedience. To hear God means that you're giving yourself to obedience to him. So hear, O Israel, the Lord is God, the Lord is one. So what Paul says is there is, and he will bring this out in Ephesians, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and in all and through all. So the one God gives us one salvation and he creates one new people, one new humanity in Christ. The old distinctions are no more. Now, just to show you this one salvation, one people, let's, let's look over to Ephesians 2 for just a minute. Um, I want to show, I I show you this, kind of how it moves from the individual, the personal, to the communal. So in Ephesians 2, most evangelicals are very familiar with the first 10 verses, okay? So in the first 10 verses, we, we read about being dead in trespasses and sins, and, uh, but God's rich in mercy and we're saved by grace and then ra- raised up with Jesus and seated with him in heavenly places. And then verses 8 and 9 and 10 are perhaps some of the very first verses that people ever memorized. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of your doing, it is the gift of God, not the result of works that no one may what? Boast. All right, so there's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 are probably about as good a two-line summary of the book of Romans as you can get. All right? And then he says, far from being saved by your works, you are saved for good works because you are God's workmanship, for we are his workmanship. Now, the word workmanship there is the ancient word that was used for poetry, for a work of art. So Paul says, you are not saved by your works. You are God's work. You are God's art. You are God's poetry. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So you're not saved by works, but you are saved what? For them, because you are God's work. Okay? Now, all right, so there's all that salvation, not by works, but by grace, through faith. And then, in verse 11, he unpacks this in the communal sense. That's, so a lot of people stop at verse 10. No, don't stop. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, um, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off, who's that? That's the Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both, who are the both? Jews and Gentiles, into one, and has broken down the barrier of the dividing wall of hostility. Now, what's Paul mean by the dividing wall of hostility? There's a wall 
Paul's referring to between Jews and Gentiles. So, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Okay, what is the wall? All right. The wall is a reference to the temple. So, in the temple, there was an area for God-fearing Gentiles to come as close to God as you could get without coming fully in and becoming Jews. It's called the Court of the Gentiles. Court of the Gentiles. So it's a big area, and, and you'll remember this from the early introductory section. There were people who were Gentiles who believed in the God of Israel, and they were called God-fearers. God-fearers. good example of this, remember, was uh, Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Right? Remember, he supported the Jews with, their alms, with his alms. He prayed to God continually and so on. And he's the one that Peter comes to and preaches in his household. All right. So he's a God-fearer. So the God-fearers are Gentiles. They attended synagogue, but they'd never been circumcised. They did not become full Jews. And there were God-fearers who would come to Jerusalem. They would come there for the various feasts and so on. And they could not come all the way into the temple grounds. And and they took this very seriously, by the way. There were temple police and temple guards at various gates. They were Levitical guards, and they would kill you. They had swords. And if you, as a Gentile, tried to get past one of those Levitical guards into one of the holy areas, as a Gentile, they would kill you. Okay? So they took that stuff pretty serious. Those are your ushers. Okay? That's not exactly kingdom hospitality there, right? Okay, so it gets worse. Because here's what happened in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, Jesus comes into Jerusalem. And the entire area, this court of the Gentiles, is filled, not with Gentiles, it's filled with tables of money changers and people selling animal sacrifice, the animals for the sacrifices. So the, the, in the temple, you could not use Roman currency because the Roman currency had Caesar's head on it. That was held to be blasphemous, that image, and so you couldn't use that in here. So you had to exchange your money. So you have a money changer, you turn in your Roman coins, your Gentile money, and you get temple money. Now with that temple money, you can buy the animal you need for a sacrifice. Okay, so at Passover, how many people have showed up to do sacrifice? How many, okay, and they couldn't bring your lamb. It was too far to bring a lamb. No worries, we're running fast food here. We got lambs for you right here. No use trying to bring your lamb all the way from Nazareth. We got lambs for you right here. So change your money, buy your lamb, kill the lamb. Now you can have Passover here in beautiful downtown Jerusalem. Where are you going to do, where, where, where did they run that whole operation? Well, they ran it in the court of the Gentiles. So Jesus walks in, takes one look around, and does what? Goes, good job. I like this. This is excellent. No, that's not what he does. He starts kicking over tables. In John's gospel, it says he made the whip himself. I want you to think about that. He made the whip himself. I want you to think about that. How long does it take to make a whip? I don't know. I think it's probably longer than a couple of minutes. So I think some people think Jesus came in and lost his temper. That's not what happened. He took one look and went, yeah, I know what to do about this. And he went out. He, got, he, went, he went back out, and he made a whip, and then he came back, cracking that whip. He's going all Clint Eastwood on these people, and he's kicking over tables and knocking over the money changers' tables and driving out all the sacrifices, 
and he says, my father's house will be a house of prayer for, you finish it, all nations. What's the word for nations? Ethnos, which means what? Gentiles. But you have made it a den of thieves. Now, what does he mean by that? Does he mean, well, Jesus meant by that that they were, you know, they were doing bad exchange rates on the temple currency. No. I don't know what the exchange rates were. I don't know if they were good or bad. It doesn't say. But here's what I do know. If this area is filled up with this commerce that's going on, that's the only place where the Gentiles can be, who isn't there? The Gentiles. This is their worship space, and it's been filled up with all of this. So who's being robbed? The Gentiles are being robbed of God, and God is being robbed of the Gentiles. And so Jesus said, clear it out. My Father's house is a house of prayer for who? All nations. When Jesus died on the cross, now that moment of cleansing the temple, that happens in the week. It happens right after Palm Sunday. Right after Palm Sunday. And it leads to Jesus' crucifixion. So Paul ties that wall, the, the wall dividing the Gentiles from the rest of the temple to Jesus' crucifixion. And he says, in Christ's death, the barrier of the dividing wall has come down. No more wall separating the Gentiles out. There's no more walls. The veil is torn. In other words, if the veil is torn and the wall is down, what's happened to barriers? They're gone. There's no more barriers between God and us, and there's no more barriers between us. All the old barriers are gone. This is why having a Christianity which exists in division over ethnicity and economy, any of those kinds of things, race, unit, any of that kind of stuff, is absolutely antithetical to the gospel. Absolutely antithetical. You cannot have first and second class Christians because there is no first class salvation and a third class salvation. There is no economy class salvation. Right? That doesn't exist. So the very first church, very first Presbyterian church I ever preached in is one of the prettiest churches you'll ever see. And it's Zion Presbyterian Church down in Columbia. Anybody here ever been there? Down in Columbia, Tennessee? Lovely, beautiful church. It was where I preached my sermon for, for, for presbytery here to decide whether or not I, they'd let me in, okay? Well, it was back in 99, and I was transferring my ordination into the Nashville Presbytery, and the presbytery meeting happened to be there that day. And it's an antebellum church, which means it's a what, how old is that church? Antebellum, what does that mean? It's before the war. Which war? Well, if you're in the South, that before the war only means one war, okay? There's only one war we're talking about, all right? It was before that war. Okay, now that church has a fantastic, I mean, it's gorgeous. And it's got this beautiful gallery as well. It's got this big balcony area. And that's terrific. Gorgeous. Except, but when the church was built before the war, who was the gallery for? That's where the slaves sat. So owners here. Slaves here. And you couldn't take communion together. All right. Um, now those divisions 
are thankfully all gone. Or are they? You see. Some of those divisions still exist in our hearts. They could be economic. They could be racial. They could be educational. Those aren't my kind of people. But you see, how many, when you say something like, those aren't my kind of people, you're, you're, you're denouncing, I'm, listen to this, I, I want to put this to you in the strongest possible terms. You are denouncing Christ. You are, you are denouncing the gospel. Because the gospel says all people have what in common? Sin. And of course, brown people sin, and black people sin, and white people sin, and Asian people sin, that can be easily distinguished. Right? Because obviously the sins of African people are greater. They're worse, right? Than the sins of Norwegians. <laughs> obviously. Obviously. So, so, you see, this kind of nonsense, this kind of nonsense is crazy town. It's just crazy town when it comes to being a Christian. You can't live there. You can't go there. All right. So that doesn't mean that those cultures aren't identified and rich and have contributions to make. The individual cultures do because all those cultures come into the kingdom. Uh, but if you think that people are better or worse than one another because of the color of their skin or because of the neighborhood they live in or because of the job they hold or the education they have or don't have, then you're, you're, you've missed the whole thing. So here's what, here's what Paul says. Christ is our peace, this is verse 14, who has made both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. How did he do that? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, thus establishing peace. So now instead of the old divisions, what do you have? One new humanity. Doesn't matter whether you're black, white, brown, whatever. Doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. Doesn't matter whether you're male or female. Doesn't matter in Paul's world whether you were slave or free. Doesn't matter whether you were a master or a slave. You are now in Christ one new humanity. That is what the gospel has done. So that means there can be no more divisions at the table. In Galatians, this is what gets Galatians, this is what, this is what drives Paul crazy and what he mentions in his writing to the Galatians about what happened at Antioch. That at Antioch, some people from Jerusalem came and said, this is over in Galatians, in order to be a Christian, you must also be circumcised. You've got to add in all these commandments. If you really want to be a Christian, you've got to add in this other stuff. And it says that Barnabas and Peter were taken up with their hypocrisy because they started maintaining separation. The Gentiles were eating over here and the Jewish Christians were eating over there. So Gentile Christians eating over here, Jewish Christians eating over here. And Paul rebuked, he says in Galatians, I rebuked Peter to his face because he was inconsistent with the gospel. That's Galatians. All right, so the gospel has implications for the interpersonal, the horizontal, not just the vertical. When we gather around this table and we pass out the bread and we pass out the wine, you can't just come to the table and go, this is between me and Jesus. I can come here to this table and say, this is for me and the Lord, but I, 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 I don't have anything to do with you over here. You can't do that. Okay, because the gospel has identified us as 
one in our lostness and one in our salvation because God himself is what? He is one. Since God is one, we're one. To deny our unity of salvation is to deny the unity of God. Anybody want to try that? No, you don't want to go there. You don't want to deny the unity of the Godhead. So then Paul says, do we by this nullify the law? In other words, well, I guess since none of these law things are there, the law is meaningless. No, Paul says, no, we establish the law. How? How does Paul establish the law? Well, to wrap this up real quickly, there's a few ways in which, and he'll get into this later in, in Romans, but I'll just give you this as preview of coming attractions. How does he establish the law? Well, first of all, the law as Scripture, because sometimes Paul uses the term the law referring to the text, particularly the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, proclaims salvation by faith. Let me give you a reference. Galatians 3, 8, and 9. So you can write that in your study guide, Galatians 3, 8, and 9. In Galatians 3, 8, and 9, it says that God who justifies Abraham, counting him righteous, preached the gospel to him ahead of time. God preached the gospel to Abraham ahead of time, and then it quotes Genesis. It quotes Genesis. It says it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So here's the interesting thing. The law, the law, Genesis book of Genesis is the law because those are the, part of the first five books of the Bible, preached the what? The gospel. So the gospel is embedded in the law. So the law preaches the gospel. Here's the second thing about the law. Its requirements have been perfectly met by Christ through his life and death. Romans 8, 1 and 2, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did in sending his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 1 and 2. So just make a little note of that. We'll get all of that when we get to Romans 8. But the law is not contrary to the gospel. Trying to be saved by the law is contrary to the gospel. But the law itself is not contrary to the gospel. So that's why Paul says we establish the law. The law does some things with reference to the gospel. It preaches the gospel to us. It shows us our need of a Savior, and it points us to Christ, just as it it spoke to Abraham, okay? And in pointing to Christ, it shows that how all of its requirements have been fulfilled by him. Remember, the legalist doesn't take the law seriously enough. The person who believes in salvation by grace takes the law very seriously indeed. The law is such a serious matter that only Christ could possibly save us because its demands and its penalties are so great and so severe. So we take the law very seriously. So, do we toss out the law when we say we're saved by grace? What's the answer to that? No, not at all. The law of faith, which says we're saved by grace, means that we establish God's law. We continue to say, there it is. It's, it's something we have to pay attention to. And Paul will unpack in Romans how that works. Now, next in Romans chapter 4, which we'll come to next week, Paul will use Abraham's life as a way of showing what it means to live by faith, to live in justifying faith and grace. Let's stop there and see what questions you've got. 
Yeah. You know, Star, that's a great question. Star's asking how thick was the veil in the temple. Um, and, and short answer to that, I don't know exactly how thick it was. I'd, I'd have to go look that up. Uh, you've heard it was a, a, like a hand breadth, like that thick? Wow. That wouldn't be shocking, would it? That it would be kind of a tapestry, giant tapestry, thick kind of material like that. Has anybody got anything on that? Anybody know? Off, off the top of your head? That'd be a great thing to look up. I don't know. It was a very thin veil in Moses' tabernacle. Uh, it's woven material, but it's, it's not that big. But, of course, the temple would have been a much larger structure. So, interesting. Yeah. Others, yeah. Are some sins greater than others? Yes. Yes. There, there is a hierarchy of sins, okay? Uh, there are sins that are greater than, than others uh, that carry different kinds of even more severe penalties with them. And there is, for instance, an unforgivable sin, right? Blasphemy of the Spirit, okay? But the essential penalty for all sin is death. So even, the, even the sm- breaking the slightest commandment means you've broken them all. You've broken them all. So, so if I've broken one commandment, say, you shall not covet, and I, I, I looked at the Audi a little longer than I should have, at my neighbor's, at my neighbor's Audi, right? <laughs> I want that, okay? Um, then I've broken all the other commandments. And the, and the hierarchy at that point means that even the hierarchy of penalties, they're all mine too. And so here's the thing, but think about it like this. Okay, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with what? Okay, okay and the second is like it, love your neighbor yourself. But let's just take the greatest commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind. I haven't done that a single day in my life. Because I have to love the Lord with what? Right? Have I ever done that? Have I ever done that? Like, that's my old fun saying, you know, if I had a humble day, I'd be proud of it. Right? All right? I I mean, I'm just a mess. I'm a mess. I've never loved the Lord the way I'm supposed to love the Lord. So if that's the greatest commandment and I've broken it, what does that make me? The greatest commandment. Sinner. So, I mean, hey, let's not even worry about the rest of them, right? I mean, if I've broken already the greatest commandment, then what do I need? I need a great salvation. I, ha- I got one, and so that's good news, yeah. We need to what? We do. We repent daily, don't we? Yes, we always do. Luther's, the very first number one thesis of, of Luther's 95 is, is this, is that the Christian life is a life of repentance. Yeah. Four inches thick. Well, there you go, Star. You had it. Hand breadth, four inches thick on that veil. That's fantastic. And it tore. Wonderful, beautiful. Okay. Yep. 
I had a good time. Beautiful. <laughs> That's great. Watch out for the Lutherans. I'm just kidding. All right, yeah, Diana. How much, how much cockroach does it take to ruin a good salad? Right. <laughs> right? I mean, before you send it back. I mean, does it take the entire cockroach? I mean, no. I mean, really, just a leg will do. And then you go, yeah, no, I don't think so. I'm sen- just well, a hair. One little hair. And you go, no, that's got to go back. <laughs> that's right. Hey, let me pray for us. Father, thank you for... Our our friendships, thank you for the joy of the gospel. Thank you for the greatness of our salvation because we are are greatly, deeply uh, sinful people. And we pray that you will help us to banish from our our hearts and minds, that you would by your spirit continue to banish from our souls any of the thoughts that lead towards division in the body and who we can be at the table with and who we can't be and all that kind of stuff. And help us to realize that what the gospel has done is break down all the barriers between you and us and between each other and that you've made one new humanity in Christ and so we thank you that you are the one true living God and you have made us one with you and one people to show who you are so please um, perfect that unity in our hearts we pray amen